Hollywood's favorite half-drow. In honor of Vin Diesel in The Last Witch Hunter, what other eccentric movie star should create his or her own nonsense franchise, and really what franchise should that be? Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with Linda Hamilton, and I want it to be a series of thinly-veiled biopics about her marriage to James Cameron. I would see that. I am Matt Patches, <laughs> and I'm going to go with Paz de la Huerta. Who, uh, de la Huerta. De la Huerta. Paz de la Huerta. Who should um, remake that 1997 movie, Fairy Tale, a true story about those two girls who um, find fairies, and she could play the fairy. <laughs> Make it. Uh, let's see here. I'll go with Christopher McDonald mm. of Happy Gilmore and Requiem for a Dream fame, starring in uh, Hannibal, The Next Generation. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 92 for Tuesday, October 20th, 2015, the year of our time lord, Dr. Emmett Brown. The time has come. Tomorrow, as you listen to this, Marty McFly will arrive from 1985. What moves will he bring from us, bring for us from the past? Anyway, before we get started with this week's very not futuristic podcast, David, I hear we have some new reviews. Two new reviews. From the future. Mm. From, I future wrote the- you a letter or a review. The first... Three stars from Shadow Artists. No, it's called Shadow Artists, rather. It's by oh, we are the Shadow Artists. 86 We are the Shadow Artists. Interesting. That is the he name says, of my band. rambling, pretentious, and harsh, <laughs> even for a film podcast. Once I heard the men on the show talk down to their female colleague about oh. liking Matt Damon after he made sexist and condescending comments on his television shows, suggesting she condoned his behavior. It may have been a joke, but it spoke truly to some of this show's worst tendencies. Anyway, it's decent enough to, to pass the time sometimes when I've run out of other podcasts to listen to. <laughs> I do remember you guys talking over me a lot in that episode. And it was very heated. I, I did note the irony. Well, you, you I think get we the last word. Get the last I, word on Matt Damon right now. Like, yeah, what do you think so about this Matt is your time. Matt Damon. I like him. That's I don't this know. Is, I was, all right. This is the commentary we missed. Oh, I, did not, I did not prepare remarks for this. <laughs> well, I'm glad we gave you the floor. <laughs> and now women will never be allowed to speak again. Yeah. Uh, superior podcast. Five stars from Flat Earth Scott. This show is like hanging out and talking about films with your friends. If your friends knew as much about cinema as you wish they did. Mm-hmm. Four different critics with four distinct viewpoints make for an entertaining episode every week. But be forewarned. You'll seek out their written work as well. You will feel compelled to waste your time reading thousands of reading words the written about their phony opinions. No. Uh, I now subscribe to Little White Lies and read Vanity Fair, Esquire, Forbes, and other publications' websites thanks to this talented bunch. Keep up the good work. Well, I, I heartily encourage you, Flat Earth Scott, and everyone else who's listening, to continue subscribing to Little White Lies <laughs> as I do. However, uh, you will no longer find my writing there beyond the Aww. December issue, which but is going to be a, a doozy. There's a, a doozy. different publication where they can find yes, you. Yes, you can find me at Rolling Stone. Please do. Make them look like, make me look good. Guys, we're keeping Articles. print media alive single-handedly. This is great. Be warned. Since we all work for the website. Be warned.
week marks the release of Suffragette, which is a movie about British suffragettes fighting for the right for women to vote. It has Carrie Mulligan in it. Uh, I hear it has Meryl Streep in it for literally one scene, even though she's been doing press for it for 100 years. Um, I haven't seen this movie yet, but David, I distinctly remember you seeing it at the Telluride Film Festival and kind of holding back in your criticism. You, you tweeted a picture of an unhappy dog to kind of sum mm. up. And not even the usual unhappy dog you tweet to talk about your feelings <laughs> on Twitter, but a real dog. Um, and, but I, it kind of seemed like you were holding back because it seemed kind of mean-spirited to pick on a movie that is about an important social movement. It's directed by a woman. It's kind of representing a lot of things we want to see more of in cinema. Um, David, no, it's, I, not that, it's not that yeah. it's mean-spirited necessarily. It's just it's not... I'm sensitive to the to the idea that it's not a good look to come out as a male critic to come out swinging <laughs> from a film festival about how a movie called Suffragette, uh, which has been in the mix of some heated rows uh, about a number of different things, really, is truly one of the worst films I've seen this year. The filmmaking is incompetent. It's incompetent. And uh, I, I hated this movie. But, I mean, it's one thing for me to couch it in that context here and say – you know, people will see this movie, you know, which is really fixes Oscar bait. It's going to do very poorly critically. Um, I don't know how it will fare commercially. And, and I think it will be a certain time become okay to bemoan the fact that it was not better. However, uh, yeah, I think that there's an understanding reticence to the, the, I was not the first to see the film. There was not really this urgency to review it and stake my piece on it. I didn't feel as if I had anything especially interesting to say about it. Um, mm. In which case I may have, uh, been a little less ashamed or, or not ashamed, but a little less shy about sharing my opinion. But I, I seeing it there, I just didn't really feel like I had anything other to say about it than, than bad should have been better. Thank God. Uh, uh, women have the right to vote now, at least in the UK and the United States, the movie ends with a crawl of places in the world where in the times at which they granted women the right to vote and a number of countries, uh, of course, where that right still is do still do not. Um, and it's all very upsetting. It, it, it's the same as the Malala documentary or Free Held. I mean, these are all. Although you uh, have made fun of the Malala documentary relentlessly, right? I know those are these are all awful films. Uh, the, <laughs> the, uh, the Malala documentary, I think, is a little bit. Um, there's something. I mean, I think Davis Guggenheim is just so shameless. There's a lot more uh, cynicism in the attempt, whereas Suffragette, I thought, was really uh, well mo- well intentioned. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that these are all. You know, the the fight to get education into um, impoverished and, and you know, uh, clinically misogynistic areas. And, and of course, free held the right for equal rights, gay marriage. Uh, these are all things that are near and dear to my heart. And I'm, I'm very uh, supportive, but it, these are three just gruesome message movies. Uh, so, so do you think you feel guilt in critiquing them or is it something where like, I, I think what you said about not having something interesting to say is really interesting because there's so many people when you're at a film festival and you see them come out tweeting being like, eh, could have been better. And like that's their extent of what they have to say about the movie. Yeah. And I do – when something like that happens, I do think like maybe it is worth thinking if you have something to add to the conversation. Well, it's it's not guilt so much as reticence. I just uh, – I don't feel – you know, I don't feel guilty about not liking this movie. I wish that it were better and uh, it's a shame. Um, I – I think sometimes if you go to a festival and you see a movie that doesn't have distribution, you really want to hold back because there's no use in shitting on it. Um, but a movie like Suffragette, which has so many stars and is in the pipe for Fox Searchlight and is going to be this big film over the fall, uh, or at least is intended to be, it's not that kind of reaction that it inspires. But yeah, I mean, I just, I just felt like um, I didn't feel 
for a movie like this, I just thought that it was a little bit more delicate and that um, if if I really wanted to come out swinging and, and give the world a piece of my mind, uh, I should have had a more nuanced argument ready to go yeah. um, rather than just like, meh, uh, which is more or less what I said. But I mean, I, I, <laughs> I didn't um, I didn't want to come out and be like, fuck this movie. Like, it's an embarrassing like the the, the direction is uh, in it's in the 140 characters. I think it would have come across as very glib to say, to use the word incompetent. Um, it seems sort of more loaded than I would have meant it to. Yeah, especially if you're talking about a female director. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. So, well, so, especially because I think there's going to be a lot of people who want to just support the film blindly. Yeah. That mm-hmm. sense. I mean, we, we, we run into this problem all the time that we want to just support a film like this, like you said, Katie, because of who's, who made it, because of who's involved, because of what it's standing for. And there's a lot of socially active people in the film conversation world who aren't necessarily critics. They're champions of this diversity, of challenging this imbalance in the industry, and it's happening more and more. Which is a worthy cause. Yeah, no, it's definitely a worthy cause. And this movie comes out as, you know, Jennifer Lawrence campaigns to have uh, equal pay for for women and men. You know, like, this is such part of the conversation. How do you come out against this movie and say, you know what, it's a bad movie. (laughs) You can't really Yeah, and I don't know if that does the art. A service. It, it just seemed like a, a perfect storm of, of um, there was, again, I mean, to some come, come back to the, I, I think people who are listening to this and snickering often think that I probably have nothing to add to the conversation. That doesn't usually stop me. But in this particular case, uh, I just felt like the, the downside of coming out swinging so greatly outweighed the upside of mm. whatever, registering my opinion into the, the void. So- um to bring this like outside of the context of criticism, Patches, you've always kind of been a big champion of like you like what you like. Your you know your favorite movie is also the best movie. Like don't feel guilt about something. But do, are are you immune to this kind of guilt where you watch something like and not and it might be it's like a cultural vegetables kind of movie or like an old movie that you're told is great or is important for some reason. You watch it and you're like I don't like this. Well, and I, I don't, and I feel bad about it. Twelve Years a Slave and being like, ah, I knew crap. someone was going to bring up Twelve Years a Slave. I, I feel like, like a lot of people much. felt like that about that movie. Yeah. Well, I also felt that way about Fault in Our Stars. Mm. Like I really didn't like it, and I didn't want to be. I just knew that like the majority of male critics were not were going to be knocking, especially older male critics. I just knew it. Like they do go into movies with prejudice, and and. I, I this is for young young ladies and it's fluff and it's and it's silly it's trite I just knew what some of these arguments against the movie were going to be before it even came out because it's YA it's all so loaded right so when you go in this movie and you're like I just want to give this movie a chance please be good and it stinks then yeah. what do you do like you feel guilty about it because your honest reaction is this is not good the uh, gender element of this is not something I expected, but I think it's really interesting because female critics so often walk out of a movie that's for men and like kind of don't don't feel bad for not liking it, but prepare for the shit show of comments and angry emails are going to come if you like say you poorly review an Expendables movie like happened to me. So it's like there's a there's a reverse side of it, but guilt for me at least has not been involved in like not liking a dude movie. Well, oh, so, but what about uh, a movie that's about female issues or has a female lead? You haven't seen. Suffragette, but yeah, I'm trying to think of an example. Do you think, like, knowing? I mean, I trust David's opinion that maybe this movie isn't so hot. A lot of people are just going to go to bat for it anyway. Does it do what they're arguing for any good to to back a movie that stinks? I mean, I I think stinks, I guess, has to be a really relative term. Like, if there, I'm sure there are some people who think that it has merit. And I think this happens with a lot of kinds of movies where you're like, this movie is not perfect, but it's expressing a point of view that is really valuable, that's really interesting. Like, I think about, um, 
Ava DuVernay's first movie, Middle of Nowhere, that I saw. I don't remember. I saw it late, kind of after various people had championed it. And I don't, not her, not her first movie. Sorry, sorry, her kind of breakthrough movie, the one that won her an award at Sundance. Um, and I don't think I, I don't think this movie sinks at all. I think it's pretty good. I think it might. I think I probably told more people to see it than I might have had it been a regular romance about normal white people because it was representing something that I hadn't seen before. So there is kind of a, there's a way that you can champion films more than their objective quality because of what they represent or what they're bringing to the table that isn't there otherwise. I I do think that feeling guilt can actually be good for people. Um, (laughs) I think of Frozen, which is a movie I don't really care for, but that I learned an important lesson. Like, I just don't have to talk about this movie i shouldn't talk about its its pitfalls why i don't like it if other people i am very close to love it uh, but i feel like guilt case. shouldn't be like you shouldn't feel guilty for not like frozen doesn't need you like there's no guilt involved if you don't like frozen but i also think that fun. like when it comes to a film like suffragette the the feelings that it inspires from you is it's these movies don't exist in a void and they don't exist in a vacuum and i think that maybe uh i would feel very differently about any of this stuff five years ten years after one of these films comes out and but like you can't uh, as much as people from the outside would wish that you could or don't necessarily think that this is somehow a failing of your criticism to not accommodate for this but like you can't remove it from its circumstance so right, I think no, that, like, no yeah. and it's it's kind of I mean no I I, I find I think Film criticism in context of history is by far the most interesting thing you can do, even if the history is the Transformers movies are really popular, so we got another one. Like, you have to have that context. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so, like, I I don't know. I just uh, – um, I, I hear what Patches said earlier about how if a message movie – or maybe one of, one of you said earlier, but if, like, if a message movie is not good, if it's as flawed as I believe Suffragette to be, is it advancing its cause – um, and it's like, you know, it's a, it's a much harder question to answer now in the thick of things than it is down the line because yeah. I, I can't uh, – I have no accurate way of measuring the value of adding, you know, this extra dollop of talking about feminism and, and um, women's rights and all these things to the discourse. Uh, well, think about, um, think about Philadelphia, which I think now is kind of regarded as like fairly melodramatic, not especially well. And I haven't seen it since high school, so don't let me be passion judgment. But the import, cultural importance of that movie is, can't be underestimated. I think it came at a really valuable moment in AIDS. And so I don't know, like, does that increase its value? It certainly increased its value at the time. Um, but value is fluid. I mean, these things change. Uh, it's, it's, you, the a film's value now is not what its value will be 10 years from now. And yeah. I think that that's fine. I mean, we can, you see it all the time on the internet now. This is how sites stay alive. You write about the same movies again. You revisit them, usually for arbitrary reasons. Um, and I think that uh, Suffragette, un, unlike Philadelphia, I mean, well, maybe like Philadelphia, I think its value will only decrease in time. Uh, and hopefully that will say good things about the state of the world where uh, a message movie begins to look ridiculous because the message whatever call to arms it's issuing has been answered, which is a good thing. Yeah. I wish I, I'm trying to think of an example from the past of a call to arms that, uh, I don't know. I'm, I guess maybe free held will look ridiculous when everyone has equal rights for their partners, etc. So David, a thumbs down on suffragette to end hard, this. hard pass on <laughs> suffragette. That dog didn't like it either. No.
So I think I've talked enough on this podcast about how I'm catching up on things late all the time. Like then there are still things that we've talked about like Fargo that I have not watched at all. But I wanted to use the mini segment as an opportunity just to plug something that I have been catching up on late and give everyone else a chance to as well. And another thing that I've been doing is a playing house, a sitcom on on USA that is available on demand, which is how I've been watching it. And it just recently wrapped its second season. Uh, it's, it's created by these two women who had a show on NBC for a while that was, I think it was called Best Friends Forever that lasted for about two seconds. Uh, and they star in it and play basically two best friends. The name is Jessica, Jessica St. Clair and Lennon Parham, if you've caught them somewhere before. But it's also got a Keegan-Michael Key who of Key and Peele, who's kind of a, uh, you know, I get off again love interest. And it's just really really funny like kind of fast quick-witted like not quite as zany as 30 rock but kind of a similar pace of the humor and for someone who's kind of sitcom like the sitcoms that i watch even then mostly i kind of mildly laugh if at best and this one is just really great really funny and i love it patches what are you catching up you should on? not feel bad about being in a perpetual state of catching up who is not? i don't really feel much. bad about There's it I, I just hate it when i miss like when I miss the conversation, especially like if we're having it on the podcast, I'm like, guys, Fargo, which I'm going to do in like six months. So just get ready. Damn, don't bother. <laughs> Looking uh, forward to it. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Um, well, first, I'm going to recant my statements earlier this month about all of the new television being bad because uh, I caught up with uh, the grinder, Rob Lowe's. Yeah, I hear that's good. And it's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. Uh, you know, this is a spoof of lawyer shows in a way. Rob Lowe plays uh, an actor who is on a, uh, playing like a high-profile lawyer on television for years, and uh, that show ends, and he goes back to his hometown and decides that he might as well join his family law firm because he knows everything about law, and actually he starts helping them win cases by being a total jackass. And he's mostly playing his character from Parks and Recreation as a lawyer, as a TV actor playing But not, a like, super positive, right? Not like a... Well, kind of, yeah. I mean, he's extremely optimistic about their chances. So, um, oh, God, uh, I should look this up. But um, the brother for, or the main Fred character, Savage. Yeah, Fred Savage. Okay, there you go. Fred Savage plays his brother and um, is a total kind of schmuck lawyer. He can't speak straight. He's got the brains, but he doesn't have the, the mannerisms. He doesn't have the presence, and he can't actually go to court and get anything accomplished. And he... Um, and that's their yin and yang. Uh, so they're able to really help each other. And Rob Lowe is really optimistic and does think they can win every case. And his all of his uh, catchphrases from the show kind of push their uh, push their cases for it. It's very, very funny. Um, and the other thing I was going to mention was this show, Steven Universe, which I have been catching up on, which is a, uh, a show from one of the animators of Adventure Time. I wish Dave was here. He would totally back me up on the show. <laughs> but uh, now that all of Cartoon Network's, uh, all their series are on Hulu, been watching Steven Universe, and it is a bundle of joy. It is about this little kid being raised by three like intergalactic defenders, basically these three women, all powerful. They live in a beachside town. Uh, Steven's dad is a total deadbeat uh, who is married to his mother, who basically kind of transformed herself into Steven. It was very, it's very weird. She was also an intergalactic defender, but Steven is part human, and he's a little kid, and he's rambunctious and weird, and it's basically about raising him in this uh, non-nuclear family. And trying to, you know, it's coming of age, but it's also has that adventure time um, sci-fi angle. And it's just really, it just makes me so happy. If you want a show that's just pure joy, watch Steven Universe. David, how about well, you? Well, uh, I am 
really pleased by the timing of this question because I feel like I've been, You've been a lot catching of catch up. up on a lot. Yeah. Uh, where to begin? The first thing in the television arena is I watched all ten episodes of a show called Red Oaks. Uh, this on that's on Amazon this weekend. It is directed by up on that. I thought it just came yeah. out. It just started, oh. and I wrote a long story about it that you can oh. read on Vanity well, I am catching up on it because uh, I mean, I it's con- co-conceived by uh, Greg Jacobs, uh-huh. then, who Greg directed Jacobs. the masterpiece known as Magic Mike XXL and Steven Soderbergh. A lot of the episodes are directed by David Gordon Green, which is less of a point of interest as time goes on, but worth noting. Also, Amy Heckerling, Hal Hartley, all directed some. Um, and it and shameless. Uh, Name drop Wait, here. Hal Hartley? That's yes. awesome. Hal Hartley directed an episode. Yeah. And uh, it, it, one of my friends who starred in my most recent short film, however long ago that was now, uh, plays a, a large role in it um, as Misty, the lifeguard. It's a show that's set at a, uh, at a country club in New Jersey in 1985. It stars Craig Roberts um, as this kid, kid who's like 20. Submarine. Yeah, a kid from Submarine and Neighbors, more importantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... I, I thought it was – I just had such a great time watching it. I mean, I pure joy. It uh, Sure. I mean, it, it, it is very, very snackable, entertaining. It, uh, it becomes a little deeper as it opens up, as it goes along. Fred Wise is the father, develops a really interesting relationship. And Jennifer Grey. Richard Kind. I always confuse him with Fred Wise. You go with their names. It's like name, adjective. <laughs> um, Richard Kind uh, and Jennifer Grey are his mother and father. And uh, Paul Reiser kills it. Anyway, mini segment. Right. Got to move on. Anyway, Alexandra Tertian is the, my friend's name. She's very good in it. I like the show very much. Uh, and the other thing is an iPhone game, which is how I know of Steven Universe, a show I've never seen because there's an iPhone RPG <laughs> that was fine that I played oh, uh, on it. Um, no, it's fine. I mean, you'll enjoy it probably more than I did because of your connection to the show. But it's a game called uh, uh, the A Dark Room, it's called. Uh, it's been out for a few years. It is a text-based RPG um, that is very unsettling and addictive, uh, and I think Patches in particular, and maybe Dave and Katie, you know, all people of all ages, maybe not the young. I've, uh, I've well, talked on this about how I don't play video games. I know. No, that's I why I referenced you last. I, if they're on my phone, maybe yeah. maybe then. Uh, a Dark Room, I, I thought was fantastic. Uh, and it actually kind of reminded me of The Martian, if The Martian were interesting. So <laughs> it's uh, And there is a Martian iPhone game, which I have not played. But I did see on the Catch up on it. Uh, um, anyway, so Red Oaks and A Dark Room. We always do. Saturday night at the movies. Who cares what picture you see? When you're hooking with your baby, let's row in the balcony. So guys, do people go to the movies anymore? Yes or no? Patches, yes. Uh, <laughs> my my friends. No, still no, go to no. Movies. Just yes, yes, they do. David, do people yes. go to the movies anymore? Okay. So this is a topic that I got dragged into a Twitter debate over over the weekend while I was at a wedding and not paying any attention, and then turned on my phone the next day and was horrified. Oh, I've gotten into Twitter fights at weddings before, and you're like, why? Why not? <laughs> I didn't know any of it was happening until the next day, um, because the. There's a, so there's a couple of different stats that are floating around that kind of, if you want to say that box offices on one trend or another are kind of confounding. Uh, the Martian, as we've discussed on the show, is a pretty big hit and is selling a lot of tickets and, you know, is exactly the kind of movie you think would be a hit. It's got special effects. It's got a star. It's kind of old fashioned in that way. At the same time, uh, Everest and The Walk are two gigantic 
IMAX spectacles that are kind of supposed to be the thing that's going to draw people into theaters. It's like, you have to see it. You have to experience this sweaty palms that you get watching Joseph Gordon-Levitt on this tightrope. And uh, both of these movies have kind of tanked the walk more so than uh, Everest. My palms, they're sweating so I know. Um, and then and then over the weekend was the theatrical and Netflix release of Beast of No Nation, the movie by Kerry Fukunaga that opened in theaters and on Netflix at the same time, which is the first time that had ever happened and pissed off a lot of movie theater owners. And it proceeded, as I think many people would have guessed, to make basically no money at all in theaters, which had at least a couple of people kind of wondering, like, what is the future of this model? Can Netflix really get away with it? Like, is there any reason to expect people to go see a movie in theaters if it's already there on Netflix? And to me, like, I have been so convinced for so long that movie theaters are going to die in a really slow way and probably not ever for good. But the model we have of these multiplexes and malls with sticky floors and kind of garbage projection is going to go away. Oh, you make um, it sound so sad. And well, I know. Well, that's the thing. It's like so many of the movie theater experiences that I've had have not been that great. I've had wonderful ones, but there are a lot of movie theaters that I wouldn't be that sad to see go, especially, you know, Growing up in suburbia, not as much in New York, where any movie theater that hangs in there is doing okay. Though one of them has bed bugs. Um, but then it's so things like the walk and Everest tanking kind of tell me that it's happening. And then something like the Martian kind of tells me that it isn't. And I kind of, I'm kind of fine with that. Like I'm okay with it being mixed messages. I still think that the trend is really clear that that kind of theatrical experience is going away. But then well, say the stat. I, tell us well, your stat. Well, According to Variety, in 2015, there will be a record number of ticket sales, or the projection is that there will be a record number of ticket sales in 2015, which is not box office, but it's actual ticket sales, which traditionally has been something that's been lower. I mean, there were more people going, like, you know, 80% of the U.S. population was going to the movies once a week in the 1930s. Like, you're never going to match that. But there is actually, it's not just that Jurassic World's making a ton of money off the same 13-year-olds, but and off of 3D prices, but people are actually going to the movies. So, I don't know. David, am I crazy to think that the movie theaters are actually ever going to die? No. I mean, you're not crazy. <laughs> uh, just wrong. I, I mean, I certainly hope that you're wrong. Uh, although, I, I would hope that uh, the movie theaters, as we go forward, maybe aren't as you describe them. Maybe we can find a, a better <laughs> consistent experience. Um, but I do think that there is a rush to bury anything that is that people like or is in vogue or is a major part of our lives because it makes for good copy. And I think uh, the media is responsible for perpetuating it, even if it's sometimes the same thing that keeps a lot of those people employed. So it's it's uh, something that always makes me gag and roll my eyes whenever I see someone taking the streets that doesn't have the, you know, they don't have the facts and, and uh, they're basing it purely off anecdotal or evidence, which is um, never really the good thing to do. Uh, and these numbers come out and throw everything into disarray. Um, I I think that theaters will always, always is a long time I, for the foreseeable future. Theaters for your will, lifetime. Yeah, will be. Who knows how long that'll be? We'll be around in uh, in some meaningful way. I think you don't have to. Uh, we don't need to get too into nitty gritty into this analogy. But you look at vinyl, uh, and I think that there is an experiential element there as well as a cultural one that preserves older modes of uh, experiencing media. Um, but I do think that people are harp on the negative. I mean, you look at the walk and you don't stop to consider that it was a, uh, it was not a especially compelling idea for a film. There was one that had already done very well a few years ago that people are still, still fresh in their minds. Obviously, uh, Hollywood doesn't seem to think that's a problem with the Spider-Man and whatnot, but you know, we see how that trilogy turned out. The Spider-Man, uh, yeah. the Iron Man, the uh, but, Yeah. And then you like. Piece of No Nation, this is a movie that had next to no marketing, mediocre reviews. Uh, you know, Idris Elba 
not necessarily a bona fide movie star at a time where almost nobody is. It's about genocide in Africa. Uh, you know, like this is not yeah, a movie even that Terry was... Fukunaga's like no one will see this movie. Yeah, yeah. like I've, he, is... we ran an interview with him where he's just like, "This is n- you can't sell this movie to anyone. It's not going to do well." I, th- yeah. I choose to see it the other way, which is saying, like, you know, I don't think *Beasts of No Nation* is a good movie, but I do applaud the fact that it was made. That we still in these times that people are willing to finance something like that uh, at a scale where it's worth making, and I choose to look at that as a positive and say for people who. Uh, thought this would be something they would really like to see. They, in in its proper form, uh, they could have done so. Landmark theaters made that possible, but it's not a movie that was ever going to do well, particularly with the lack of marketing that it received. Uh, and so I didn't really factor that into the overall conversation about theaters. The Martian, on the other hand, uh, as we talked about in a previous episode, has struck some sort of chord. With people, it was Light Escape is fun. Everest, again, another movie that didn't do well in IMAX is about a bunch of people who die on a mountain. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's the thing with the walk. It is too. a hardcore like bummer. The, the selling point of the, the, spec- of the walk spectacle is you're going to get vertigo. Like, you're really high up. This is something right. you don't want yeah, to Yeah, but experience. you know that the walk has a happy ending. Uh, it depends right, where like... you end that story. <laughs> Wait, like with 9-11? <laughs> like, well, that's sort of the note the movie ends on. It's I mean, true, it's, but uh... okay, all right. That's like uh, and Everest is also like we're going we're going to put you right in the middle of a disaster, you know. Right. It's and not of course, be an enjoyable spectacle. This is not Avatar. So and of course, Titanic it. didn't have the happiest of endings and that certainly did okay at the box office. Well, having but having two of the most romantic or the yes. most beautiful looking people being romantic on screen kind of helps. Yes. No uh, romance in Everest. I, yeah. Only, uh, only when they slip on the ice and lock their and sex in The only romance in <laughs> The Walk is between Joseph Gordon Levitt and the buildings. The buildings. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, I, I think that people, um, in order to have their think pieces ready for Monday, and I'm not accusing Katie of, of doing this, of getting yeah, locked into a conversation. It's delete on she, uh, <laughs> she got, But, like, you know, they, they tend to have very micro views of what's happening and, and choose to read every success or failure as um, as something larger than it is. Uh, I think that you look at the numbers from this year, I mean, you have the Jurassic Worlds, but also we, as we talked about in a previous episode as well, you have these movies that did phenomenally well over the summer, these indie films that cater to older audiences who still mm-hmm. go to the movies. Um, it's the millennials, it's the younger generation, whatever the name for them is, I don't know. Us. Uh, us, us. No, it's not us. We no, are not younger mo- than millennials, Katie. No, we are millennials. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, but as much as I wish that we were, uh, I am 35 minutes away from turning 31 as we record this, lest I. But the um, the younger generation is going to have a big vote in this, and maybe we'll start to see the warm turn uh, for better, maybe possibly for worse down the line. But for right now, I think things... People I work with well, do not see movies in theaters. That's what I'm told by... No, the people, people I work with don't either. And the, I was going to ask you this, Katie. Like, What's the last movie you saw in theaters that wasn't and you got invited for work type movie? Um... I or went. What movie have but you? That's not fair. Because we went. We're oh, moved he's, out. He's impossible to take the movies. Oh, I took him to see Mad Max, in the, for a second time. I usually take my family to go see something like over Thanksgiving. Okay, like, so let's like, talk about your family. What movies do they go to see when you're not around? Oh, my parents went to see The Martian. Really? They loved it. Yeah. What made them go? 
Yeah. They, my dad read the book. Like, I, and yeah, I was kind of really surprised when they told me that too. Like, Bridge of Spies is something they would do. Or like, my best friend from high school's parents went and saw Bridge of Spies over the weekend. But they found one of those movie theaters where you can like have a drink at your seat. I don't I have no idea where. I didn't know this existed in South Carolina, but still. Mm. Um, so yeah, they're they're going to the movies, but they're seeking out the act, the experience that isn't the kind of garbage that's handed to you by so many multiplexes. What is it? What is all this garbage talk? Multiplexes I just, are not that bad. Many, I mean, it's you mostly. I'm complaining about when you go and there's people who are being assholes surrounding you. Um, but also like. If you've gone to a movie theater where you can get a drink at your seat, like why would you not go to that one next time? And like most all those assholes go to the movies. I mean, plenty of assholes are assholes are everywhere. I should not be too critical of movie theaters for having them, but I think there is something like there's no reason for movie theaters to be expensive now compared to what they used to be. There's no reason for them not to be able to offer you that experience if that exists. Like why would you go to a regular multiplex if you're only gonna if you're the person who's gonna go to the movies at once every three months, which is about how often my parents go, and they have the option to go to somewhere nice, like why would they go out to see the walk when they can just wait until there's something playing at the place they want actually want to go see something. Yeah, I mean well, that's, I mean that's the difference between then and now, there's just more options. There's better entertainment to find elsewhere. There's no real pressure to see something in but it. i still think that the experience as uh as crucial as that is to the experience is second to being a part of something larger being you know that there is no power like somebody that you uh, or enough people that you sort of respect or one person that you really respect telling you to go see something yeah you, you gotta go see the martian you know it's that's that's what it is that drives my parents to see the theater is they keep reading Articles about whatever in the New York Times, or they, mm-hmm. um, they're not reading their son's articles. I hope, but they uh, they will need to be a part of this thing. And I think that you know, seeing the 3D for something like The Walk is one thing you can't get at home for sure, and drinks, whatever. But like, people aren't going to go see Star Wars because they want a bigger screen necessarily. They're going to go see Star Wars so they can say it, they saw Star Wars. Yeah, I mean, talk to people about Star, Star Wars. Wars is going to be an outlier regardless of what it is. Of course, like, no. Star Wars is not like anything. But else. success begets success. I mean, the the, the yes. Martian has a dip that's, in its second weekend, whatever. Of course, that's exactly why the Martian has been taken but, off because they're like, oh, well, all these people are going to see it. I guess it must be pretty good. Right, which is an incentive for people to continue making. Good movies, which and that's uh, why Jurassic World. Well, Jurassic World did the same thing because right. people kept telling them to see it. And Jurassic World's no good at all. So, who, we well, that's why things. we have film critics <laughs> who have, who have no power to talk people also, out of seeing crappy movies. I also think families will keep theaters in motion. You know, Minions is a huge, huge movie. Yeah, yeah. Because parents want to get out and they have to take their kids to something. So, you yeah. know, as long as those movies always play, even though. Those movies are made, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, like those movies are made to be watched on Netflix or on iPads. Yeah. Uh, but they'll well, still play in theaters first. And like my uncle will take his little kids and go see Minions at theaters. It's well, yeah, hopefully there's still a value our... in teaching a kid to go out in public and watch something and not squirm and not want to turn it off and yeah. pause it. Like I really think like kids might not be able to learn that unless they can go, cause you can't take a kid to the theater or anywhere else. So take him to the movie theater and teach him how to behave. Yes, but it's, it's like Cotillion. Yeah are talking about now it's, it's you know the older generation our parents your uncle whomever and the people who are going to see minions uh and it's funny because for so long the film industry coveted much more than it seems they do now uh the 18 to 32 whatever the upper limit was uh you know the teen boys and men in their 20s um and and those were the people that they were making all the movies for and I mean, it, it what sounds, are the Avengers for if not for of that? Of course. No, I mean, I, I, that's why I want to qualify that and say that it, it is not completely been flipped on its ear. But it certainly seems like when it comes to large swaths of commercial entertainment and certainly a lot of the 
films that are succeeding on an indie level, that audience is almost secondary. I do think that watching the boom of them making movies where people are parents' age, like um, Grandma and uh, I'll See You in My Dreams. And the, what was the other movie this summer? Woman in Gold. Woman in Gold, uh, yeah. It did so well. Yeah, and I, th- I think that trend is going to be really interesting to watch. And it won't last forever, just like anything else. And you Because know, those people time, will die. Yeah, time marches on. Wow. Um, and then they'll be making them for us, I guess. I, I mean, and then we'll die. But like, are we? And then our kids the- will die. And then our grandchildren. Will die. <laughs> <laughs> then the earth. Spoiler will die. alert. Um, but I do wonder at what point that might generation that, that might generationally run out. Like, if you know, our parents have the tradition of going to movies. We all went to movies in middle school. Like, I I do wonder if it's going to hit a point. I mean, it'll hit a point much you know before we are the elderly audience of maybe running out. I don't know. I don't I- think it. I don't think it works that way. And I don't. And. You mentioned the Avengers as something that's skewing towards 18, 32, whatever, the main demographic, but you're wrong about that, actually. I think that's for all ages. That's for old people who read comics. That's for young kids who like moving colors, who love minions. People who have no taste of all ages. Uh, Yeah, exactly, (laughs) kind of. But, like, men and, you know, Katie, you and I had a big feud about boy movies. We literally had two tweets. I was trying to start a feud. I know, I was really not taking your bait. I wanted you to battle me. But, um... For me, Avengers is not a boys' movie in that demographic. It is the largest swath possible, whereas a movie like G.I. Joe, which I think is squarely aimed at this demographic that David was discussing, fizzled out. You know, that franchise doesn't exist anymore. These boys' boy movies, quote-unquote, are not valuable to Hollywood anymore. So, yeah, we get movies for little kids, we get movies for older people, and then we get giant movies that are for everyone. Well, they're giant movies... What I mean by boy movies is that the giant movies that are for everyone still star primarily men. They're primarily about action sequences. They're primarily about what men want and how they solve those problems. Like those movies are still male driven, even though they're for everyone, because everyone has been conditioned that male driven movies are what the norm is. Right. But they're just they're not when we speak of demographics, they're not luring one specific demographic anymore. They are just, no, no. They become every the language movie, of the of the largest yeah, swap. Every movie has to be for Quadra because that's how it exists. But I think if you were to boil down like what demographic would identify the most with the concerns of this movie, most of the blockbusters in that mold are boy movies. Jurassic World is the same way. I do think it's interesting. You know, Steven Spielberg is someone who talks about how in the future you'll pay for a ticket to the Avengers like you pay for a Broadway ticket. It'll be sixty bucks, and you'll see it on this gigantic screen. And then there might be tiny movie theaters with. T- Steven Spielberg's tiny movies, whatever those are. It's funny that he is the person making this case because he is the one who probably destroyed uh, the model. That's not his fault. Well, it's not his fault. He just introduced the language and the entertainment to to kind of obliterate what he uh, fetishizes now. You know, I, I think of Bridge of Spies as a total reaction to this movement away from the theater, the theatrical, away from... He's He's rebelling against blockbuster filmmaking with Bridge of Spies. It's so stiff and so serious and such a throwback. Um, he wants to you know, draw this line in the sand and say, like, old people can go to the movies still. And I think Bridge of Spies will do well. People will go to the movies as a way of rebelling against the other movies that we see. I don't know. It's interesting. But it's becoming more segmented, and that keeps the theatrical experience alive. Not spectacle. Not thin. I mean, there's no... I mean, this is bring back to the beginning of the conversation. There's no selling point to spectacle 
anymore. That's not what the theater is for. There's many other reasons we go to the movies. Um, and the only reason Beast well, of No Nation played in movie theaters is to qualify for the Oscars. I, I, so yes. we can't, we I can't don't read into think that at all. That I, don't, I do think I support patches don't read too much into any of this shit at all. Theory. I mean, like every week, there's a movie that violates the rules, and a certain at a certain point, there are so many exceptions to the rules that you have to realize that the rules that you've been abiding by don't really exist. But uh, I do think that it's a bit nutty to say that spectacle isn't driving people to the movie theaters. I don't think that it's necessarily the thing that is most driving them there. But well, like uh, sheer spectacle doesn't seem to be working based on The Walk and Everest. Like The Martian well, has spectacle, but it also has like a story that seems interesting. It also has a hook, and it it's a movie a star you recognize. Yeah, well, I think I, mean, I think it might be people might expect more spectacle than it actually has. I, th- I think that spectacle is still a major factor. I think just because I, I mean, again, The Walk uh, and Everest were movies that had other mitigating factors that were larger hurdles than the studios behind them may have envisioned. Um, but yeah, I, I think spectacle is always going to be something that that it's too fundamental to the cinematic experience to divorce from it and say that it's not uh, an intrinsic part of what drives people to go to the theater. Yeah, but I think um, what, but when I we do talk think... about uh, spectacle, we think of something like The Walk. It's big. It's large in life. We're going to take you to a place you've never been. But the spectacle that I hear most people talking about, and I see this not just in our bubble with the people we talk to on Twitter, but like looking at who's talking to Esquire about what, what we're writing and that sort of thing. Sicario. Sicario is spectacle. Mm. It's driving people to the theaters. It's about a visual identity. It's about these these performances, that kind of spectacle. Whatever Villeneuve is doing in that movie is is capturing people and driving them to the theater to see it. It's not bigger, larger than life, what we always defined as spectacle. There's uh, real cinematic language seems to be attracting people now and bringing them in. So that's a good sign. Well, that's a nice way of looking at it, and I'll, I'll certainly step behind that. That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back on Friday with the review of Room, which is a movie you cannot watch in your room. You have to go into a movie theater for now to see it. Uh, In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I am the senior editor at Esquire.com, I think, right now. Oh. I slight switch. Uh, They make you editor-in-chief? Wait, what? I I am the president of Esquire (laughs) Incorporated. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches, and um, we have a website, fightingintheworm.com, where you can share episodes, where you can comment on episodes, where you can, uh, I don't know, print the pieces of paper out. You can print the website. Sure. If you wanted to do that, you could. Fightingintheworm.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm a staff writer at Rolling Stone. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. You can find all of us together holding hands in a theater in a row. Uh, on Facebook, Fighting in the War Room. And I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com uh, and also on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And Twitter is also where you can find all of us wishing David Ehrlich a belated happy birthday by the time you hear this, but wish him a belated happy birthday all the same uh, at uh, F-I-T-W-R, which is also a great place to answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of The Last Witch Hunter, the most important theatrical <laughs> film of 2015, what other eccentric movie star should create his or her or own nonsense franchise? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday. Oh, 
direction you see When you're hugging with your baby Let's throw in a balcony See you. 